Keep your fingers there, if you will, in Matthew 21. And if you would like to follow along, I'm going to actually read, and my opening prayer is actually going to come from scriptures from Psalms 118, verses 19 to 23. So if you'd like to follow along, please go there. I'll wait for a couple rustling of pages, and when you're there, say amen. And the Psalms reads, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord until, into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art, art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous. In what? Our eyes. <coughs> Go back to Matthew 21. It is the last week. And let us set up the story. Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem on Sunday. The prophet Zechariah speaks and says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of the donkey. And just as the Passover lamb was to be displayed for the camp of Israel to inspect, Jesus presents himself to the priests and the people of Jerusalem for inspection to see if he is without sin. Jesus then goes to the temple and seeing the corruption within the temple, he overturns the tables of the money changers, and he then drives out the sellers of those who were selling blemished animals for sacrifice. Christ was passionate, yet there had to be something of calmness in him, because Matthew records how the blind and the lame came to him for healing, and how the children were shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, meaning our Savior. But there were some that clearly were disturbed. The priests and the elders in the temple were not impressed. They were actually indignant upon Jesus' actions. And they challenged him and questioned him and wanted to know by what authority he had to do those things. Knowing their hearts, Jesus silenced them by asking them a question. The baptism of John. Who was it from? Heaven or men? Then Jesus tries one last time to reach their hard hearts. He tells them first a parable of the two sons, asking which did the father's will. He then gives a parable about the wicked tenants. The parables worked, partially. See, the Pharisees and the leaders of the temple were convicted that Jesus was speaking the truth and was actually speaking about them. They knew it. The sad part is, it didn't do its full work because it did not bring them to have a heart of repentance, to bring them to salvation. Christ then repeats what we just spoke about in the Psalms. Matthew 21, 42. You should mark this in your scriptures. Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous 
in our eyes. Hence the inspiration for today's sermon. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So what does this mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the head cornerstone? What function does a cornerstone provide? What does it perform? Those who are in the construction business know that the cornerstone is typically is the first stone that you lay on the foundation. Whether you're constructing a home or a building, similarly fathers do the same thing. It provides, by laying that first stone, it provides the key reference point. It establishes the boundaries and the dimensions of your building or your field. <coughs> it is also the joining point for two walls to keep them straight. If the building has value, the cornerstone may actually be marked. The name or title of the building or the builder may be placed on it. Christ, King of the Jews. Perhaps the date commemorating the dedication ceremony is also included. Can we thank the prophet Daniel for giving us the date of his appearing? The cornerstone is also a unifying point for two walls and two fences, as I mentioned. Vertically, the cross, what does it accomplish? It reconciles the lost humanity with God, uniting, or shall I say, reuniting the created with its creator, Jacob's ladder. Horizontally, the cross also does something. It binds Jews and Gentiles alike together that Christ, through him, we become one body. The apostle made this abundantly clear. For there is neither Jew nor Greek. I'm going to elaborate on this point a little later. And as I mentioned, the cornerstone functions as a boundary to mark, this is my land. In leading a rebellion against God's authority in heaven, Lucifer thought he could back God into a corner to force God into choosing between his law, which is a reflection of his character, and his creation. Cast out of heaven, Lucifer, now Satan, needed a new home. Satan, armed with the knowledge to know that God will not, in fact, cannot compromise on his law, because to do so would be a compromise on his character. Knowing this, Satan then goes and tempts Eve. Even with a seemingly simple, innocent thing like, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan knew by tempting Eve exactly what God would do. And he went through with it. By doing so, Satan now laid his cornerstone, thus marking the boundaries of his new home, earth, making us not his servants, but his slaves. But at the cross, Christ came down to lay his cornerstone demonstrating to all of his creation that God is now reclaiming the world that he created, but more importantly, he is now reclaiming the lost humanity which he created. Bound in slavery, slavery to Satan, slavery to sin. At the cross, Christ told Satan, Christ told the fallen angels, Christ told the unfallen, and all his creation, no one takes what is mine. The Lord is a jealous God passionate for his people. The cross tells us that God loves us so much. And sometimes I look at myself and wonder why. But that he would rather die than live without us.
thank you. The cross also tells us that no one, no one is above the law of God, not even God himself, for he did not even spare his own son. Now you understand the inspiration for today's sermon, the cross. Is it not marvelous in our eyes, that thing which the Lord hath done? So, beloved, do you know that the cross is the single greatest argument for everything we know as Seventh-day Adventists to be true from scriptures? I heard an amen. Thank you. Two thank yous. Thank you, Lord, for hiding me behind the cross. And thus, being the single greatest weapon we have to expose error, but more importantly, to win souls for Christ. He is crying out that last cry, my people, my people, it is time to come out of Babylon. In John, Christ said this, if I, if I be lifted from the earth, I will draw all unto me. Notice I did not say men. That was inserted by men. It's not in the original language. The cross being lifted up with Jesus on it brought all of humanity, all of God's creation together. Beloved, I want you to think about something. As a community of faith, think how blessed we are with the truth. We have the sanctuary message. We have the three angels' message. We understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation more perfectly. Lord, folks, do you know that people are out there teaching that when Jesus goes out in that white horse on, and to go out and conquer the earth, that there are people actually out there teaching that that is Satan going out to conquer the world? Since when does Satan ride on a white horse? Yet, we share the truths that we have, and so often they seem to be without effect. How many of us have shared our faith only to have the message of what we know to be true rejected? How many of us have family, spouses, loved ones, and friends who look at us as if somehow we are crazed? That we have become part of a cult. When people say that to me now, I say thank you. Christ's true followers have always been considered a cult. Imagine, though, Imagine if we combined our doctrinal truth with the power and glory of the cross. If we as Seventh-day Adventists made Christ the chief cornerstone when we witness, if we combine the cross with the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, if we combine it with the three angels' message, if we combine it with the sanctuary message, the power and glory of the cross, if God can be for us, who can be against us? Imagine if we combine the law of God with the cross, knowing that Revelation clearly states that those who keep the commandments of God are the only ones who have the right to eat from the tree of life. Beloved, I would submit to you today, we do not have to wait to go to heaven to eat from that tree. Did you know that? Take. Now. Eat, for this is my body, which was broken for you, the sign of the new covenant. The cross, is it not marvelous in our eyes, the thing which the Lord has done? 
Well, you may say, Brother Joe, that sounds all good. So how do we use the cross? Let me give you a simple example, and I've shared that with some of you already. There are those who believe today that Christ is not God, that Christ is the first creation. This actually is not a new teaching. It can actually be found as early as the end of the first century when the spirit of Antichrist entered into the world. But you know, beloved, the cross itself is the single greatest argument against anyone who tries to tell you otherwise. For you see, the Lamb of God, in order to be an acceptable atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God must first be perfect, without blemish. No mark, no stain. In short, the Lamb of God had to be God's best. Nothing short of this could be acceptable. And so if Christ was a created being, then God did not give his best. If Christ is a created being, as some claim, then Christ, who was the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth before they were even laid, that means that God created Jesus for the sole purpose of brutalizing him and sacrificing him on the cross. What does that say about the character of God? It also says that if God created Christ to die on the cross, that God was not giving, willing to give personally of himself to save us. See, my friends, the cross is the greatest argument we have for our faith. Is it not marvelous in our eyes, the thing that the Lord has done? Now, you may be sitting back and thinking, well, Joe, that's fine. We, we understand that there's this small group of people over here, but how on earth can we use the cross to deal with some of the others? Let's consider some of, we're going to look at three common teachings, which in principle are shared across the entire, nearly all, Christian community, shared by Catholics, Protestant, Evangelicals, and yes, sadly to say, even those who have called themselves Messianic Jews, those who say they are Jews but have accepted Christ as the promised Messiah. The teachings which, again, as I have said in principle, are universally shared. Consider these. Punishment for sin is what? According to the common teaching, eternal life in hellfire. But you know the love? The cross disproves that, and I'm going to show you. There's another teaching that the law of God can be changed or nullified. All of them believe it. Christ on the cross actually disproves that teaching too. There is this teaching that has permeated Christianity since 1948. That was the year for those who were historians when Israel became a nation again. That God, that the Jews are still God's chosen special people. Do you know the cross disproves that too? This is but a small sampling of some of the beliefs held commonly amongst Christian community. And the cross, or should I say more accurately, or perhaps in harmony with, it is the work that Christ accomplished on the cross that disproves every one of these doctrines. Is not the cross a marvelous thing in our eyes? Marvelous in what the Lord has done. So you may be saying, Joe, okay, I got the first one. That was pretty easy. Made a lot of sense. 
But how does the cross disprove eternal hellfire? This teaching, interestingly enough, is even embraced by Messianic Jews, which actually came as a shock to me. If true, what would it say about the character of God? Imagine Hitler and a boy who never heard of Jesus, steals some food, runs out, gets run over by a car, and they're both in hell for eternity. And Hitler looks over to the little boy and says, hey, I'm suffering more than you are. How? So how does the cross refute this doctrine? Well, consider creating a conversation instead of going to proof text. Remember, this is what we all do. Here's what the Bible says, and this is what I believe. And, and if you, someone comes along and believes something different, what do they do? They will pick up and say, well, here's my Bible verse, and here's what I believe. And so what you wind up doing is comparing opinion against opinion and Scripture against Scripture, but it's, it's personal opinion. Imagine how effective it might be if your conversation goes something like this. Do I have your indulgence for a minute? Thank you. There is privilege for being the speaker today, isn't there? Conversation may go something like this. Question, do you believe in the cross? And your fellow Christian may say, well, yes, absolutely. Well, can I ask you a second question? Another question. Do you believe Christ paid the full penalty for our sins? Well, well, why, yes, I do. Well, question, where is Jesus now? Because according to my Bible, the scriptures tells me Jesus is in heaven today. Well, 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 why, yes, the Bible does say that. Can I ask one more question? How many days was Jesus in the grave? Rhetorical, three days. So you may respond with something like this. Well, I am puzzled about something. Perhaps you can clear it up for me. You say you believe Christ paid the full price for our sins. Yet you also claim that the lost will burn in hell for eternity. Has any lights gone off? How could Christ have paid the full penalty of sin if it is an eternal hell fire and be in heaven? Because if he paid the full price according to that doctrine, he would have to be where? In hell, burning for eternity. The cross, is it not a marvelous thing? What the Lord has done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that who should believe in him shall not perish. Oh, wait a minute. I thought she said it was eternal hell fire. For the wages of sin is death, and the gift from God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Beloved, if people burn in hell for eternity, that means life is not a gift. That everyone has eternal life. The only difference is where you spend it. See, beloved, this is how Satan works. See, at Mount Sinai, this whole idea of a burning eternal hell fire is designed by Satan to discredit the character of God. Follow with me just quickly at Mount Sinai. When Moses looked upon the bush, what was it doing? It was burning. And who was present? God. In Deuteronomy, God is described as a consuming fire. 
Ezekiel has a vision of the throne of God. And what does he describe it as? A fiery throne. Isaiah describes the anointed cherub as the fiery ones. In the fiery furnace, Jesus was present amongst the fire and it did not harm them. And at Pentecost, what came upon them? Fire. Fire represents the presence of God, but Satan has taken and twisted it and made it seem like we should fear it. And beloved, if you hold on to sin and do not accept Christ, you should. Satan wants us to fear the fire. Christ wants us to be drawn to it. And I'm going to say, ah, and not so ecumenical statement. And those who want to know ecumenical, the ecumenical movement is to try to bring all Christian faiths together. I'm not falling for it. I have a question for you. If a professed leader or teacher of Christianity cannot see something as simple as this, that the doctrine of eternal hellfire is a false doctrine that stains the character of God, why on earth would you trust them for anything else? John 3.16 condemns them. The cross, is it not a marvelous thing what the Lord has done? Let's move on to another one. How about this whole idea? The law of God has somehow can be changed or has been abrogated. We've all heard the arguments before. I'm not going to repeat them. We hear what our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ say to us. The law has been done away with. A teaching held primarily by non-Catholics and evangelicals. The cross disproves it. Man can change the law of God. It doesn't matter whether you're Catholic and claim the Pope or the Church, or whether you're uh, a non-Protestant and sit back and actually try to quote Paul as justification. Neither one stands up. The Christ on the cross disproves all of it. This Sunday is now somehow a holy and sovereign day. Christ on the cross disproves that as well, too. Listen to what Matthew says in 26 and how he records it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. What is a covenant? A contract, I heard someone say. An agreement. Today we might use the vernacular and say it's a last will and testament. Now I'm going to ask you a series of three rhetorical questions. You may want to ask them to your friends. Question. If I am going to create my last will and testament, who's the only one that legally can establish the requirements? Me. What has to happen to me in order for that last will and testament to go into effect? Yeah, I got to die. Yeah. So yeah, I told you these rhetorical. They weren't hard. You're getting it. Thank you. Now, the final question. After I die, can anyone legally go back and change the conditions of my will? <gasps> really? Do you know that Paul actually makes this point in scriptures? Hebrews 9, 16 through 18, Paul has this to say, For where there is a testament, there is also the necessity by the death of the testator, meaning the person who the will was, yeah. 
For a testament is a force of no men and not until the men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Correct? Whereupon neither the first testament nor the new testament was dedicated without the shedding of blood. So now, do you see that your conversation with your fellow Christian, instead of getting back and debating over what well, Paul says this and this says that, how about trying something like this? Do you believe in the cross? Why, yes, I do. Do you believe that through his sacrifice on the cross, through the shedding of his blood, that Christ established a new covenant? But, well, yes, I do. So can you explain to me something? Because I'm a bit puzzled with what you are saying. The book of Hebrews repeats what the new covenant is. I'm going to paraphrase it very quickly because of time. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel for those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws where? In your mind and in your hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Remember we said remission, and it says, For I will be merciful to the unrighteous and their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. Hmm. So help me here. If the new covenant is God writing his law on our hearts, if, as Peter said, God did not spare the angels in heaven who sinned against God by breaking his law, if God did not spare Jesus, his own son, for changing the law, and since there is no record anywhere in Scripture Christ ever changed one jot or tittle before his death, before he sealed it, which is required for any covenant to be legal, why on earth do you think that Christ could seal a covenant with his own blood that a sinful man, be it Pope or Paul, a sinful man who needs a Savior, be it in the body of the church or Paul, could change the law of God? Can anyone legally change a covenant after the person's death? And notice I said legally. The answer is no. And so if I change the covenant afterwards, what am I doing? I am stepping outside the law. I am now a man of lawlessness. See, so you see, folks, to deny what the cross did, to deny the covenant, no matter how well intended it may be, no matter how your heart may say, oh, I love Jesus, if you deny what the covenant is, you are denying, I would submit, you are denying the cross and what Jesus did. The scriptures are clear. You break one, you break them all. If you change one, you change them all because you now have changed the basis of the law, which is love. And if you take one away, guess what? You've now taken away the entire character of God. Because every one of those laws reflect his character. The cross, is it not marvelous in our eyes? That thing with what? The Lord has done. I'm going to get you to say that before we're done, by the way. Are you still with me? We're almost at the home stretch. Hang in here. Just got one more. There's this teaching about the Jews still being God's special people. Christ on the cross disproves that as well, too. People look at the modern day of nation of Israel today and say, see, they're still God's people. They're still God's chosen. They're still special in God's eyes. 
<sighs> to say that, my dear friends, is to actually deny the cross. You say, well, how do you know that? Consider this. In Romans, Paul has this to say. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto us that is called upon him. In Galatians, he repeats the same thing. There is neither Jew nor Greek, for there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if the Jews are special, we are not one. Do you see the obvious with this? There is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcision nor uncircumcision. In Colossians, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. Christ is all in all. We are one body. If you wish to follow along, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick up with verse 13. This comes after, for grace you are saved by faith. And we usually stop there. But there's some beauty in Paul's writing to the Ephesians that we need to see. Because it is this words here more than any other place. This proves that, that, that Israel is somehow God's chosen people. Remember that when they sit back, well, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Guess what? So was Judas's betrayal of Jesus a fulfillment of prophecy. Don't miss that point. Are you there? Following along with me now in Ephesians, starting with verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you sometimes were far off, are made nigh by what? The blood of Christ. And where do we find the blood of Christ? On the cross. For he is our peace who has made us both two, no one, and has what? Kept up the wall? No, broken it down in the middle partition that's between us. Having abolished the flesh, the enmity, which puts us between the law and the commandments contained in the ordinance to make himself of twain one man, making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God one body by the cross, having slain the enmity therein. Dropping down to verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God and are built by the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the building fitly framed together groweth unto two holy temples, one holy temple in the Lord. Is not the cross a marvelous thing? Beloved, I do not care how sincere someone may be. I do not care how well-intended someone may be. I do not care how many times someone proclaims that they are a Christian. If you say today the Jews who still reject Jesus as the promised Messiah are still God's special people, what you are doing, intended or not, you are denying Christ's work on the cross. Do you deny the cross? Do you now see why I say the cross is the single greatest item we have that supports the truth that we know from scriptures. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one people, one day of worship, one God and Father in all. See, if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed, and therefore you are the heirs according to his covenant, his promise. The cross, can you say it with me? Is it not marvelous in our eyes, the thing 
which the Lord hath done. And I'm going to leave you with this one last words. I generally do not quote from anything but scriptures when I'm on the pulpit. But I felt compelled to include this bit of quote from Maranatha by Ellen White. See, this too becomes the greatest weapon when one people want to say, well, oh, you know, Ellen White, she's a false prophet. Really? Share with him this. The theme that attracts the hearts of the sinner is Christ and him crucified. Do you not believe that? On the cross of Calvary, Jesus stands revealed to the world in unparalleled love. Is that a false gospel? Present him thus to the hungering multitudes, and the light of his love will win men from darkness to light, from transgression to obedience and true holiness. Beholding Jesus upon the cross of Calvary arouses the conscious to the hideous character of sin as no other can do. Will not our church members keep their eyes fixed on the crucified and risen Savior in whom their hopes of eternal life are centered? This is our message, our argument, our doctrine, our warning to the impenitent, our encouragement for the sorrowing, the hope for every believer. If we can awaken an interest in men's minds that will cause them to fix their eyes on Christ, the uplifted Savior, we may step aside and ask them only to continue to fix their eyes upon the Lamb of God. Oh, whose eyes are fixed on Jesus will leave us all to die to selfishness. He will believe in all the word of God, which is so glorious and wonderfully exalted in Christ. It is the privilege of every Christian, not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Christ Jesus, where all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last harvest will be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. And so, my family, I leave you to this. <clears throat> we know that we're, we're the last bastion of truth. We know that we hold the sanctuary, the three angels' message, the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. But there have been times, even in my own walk, that I have not always put Christ at the center. It is time. I would love for us not to be here next year. And so I leave you with this. When I look at myself, I don't see how I can possibly be saved. But when I look at Christ on the cross, I don't see how I can be lost. The cross, is it not marvelous in our eyes, the thing which the Lord hath done.